Hi, this is Keith Larson, Editor-in-Chief of Control Magazine and ControlGlobal.com. Welcome to this Solution Spotlight edition of our Control Amplified podcast. Today I'm joined by Chris Hamlin, a consultant currently working with Seek to pioneer new ways to create business value using that company's products and services. The topic of today is sustainability, particularly the role that data analytics and other measurement and control technologies can play in sustaining the workflows that support sustainability improvements across the process industries, and even in attracting that next generation talent that will need to continue that momentum. Welcome, Chris. Real pleasure to have you. It's great to be with you as well, Keith. Well, let me jump right in here. Um, We've talked a little bit before this podcast about the bad reputation and the bad rap that industrial sustainability has. Can you maybe share some of your thoughts of why industrial sustainability continues to carry such a kind of sacrificial and punitive connotation? Yeah, I mean, it's a real interesting conundrum, isn't it? Because most of us as engineers appreciate that kind of good performance and reducing emissions and improving efficiency is a good thing for profitability as well as a good thing for the environment. But with the same, there's this kind of sense that there's a trade-off. And I think actually what a lot of it comes down to, actually it probably comes down to two different things. The first one is regulation. None of us like being told what to do. You know, it's particularly pertinent right now. But none of us like being kind of confined, told what to do, and be told that if you don't do what you're supposed to do, you get fined. Right? That puts a negative spin on everything. And the whole world of regulation around environmental protection, greenhouse mm-hmm. gas emissions, all the rest of it, has been about limits and fines. I think kind of there's a couple of other pieces in there, though, as well. There's, there's definitely a legacy effect. When the, the globally the, the climate change debate began, renewables were way more expensive than they are, probably orders of magnitude more expensive than they are today. Um, particularly thinking around electricity, a decision to use renewable electricity was expensive. It incurred additional cost. That's manifestly not the case today, but I think maybe the mindset hasn't shifted. And actually the language that we use around it underpins and drives that even more. You know, we always talk about this balance. And I'd love to know what this balance is, this balance between profitability and sustainability. But why is it a balance? It implies it's a trade-off of one to the other. It doesn't allow any space for the two to come together and for sustainability to be good business. So you know, I think partly regulation and the fact that it's limits and fines, partly the legacy that it used to be really expensive, and partly the language is almost a subconscious bias that we're all conditioned into having when we're making business decisions that keep us locked in this kind of place where, as you say, it's sacrificial and punitive. Yeah. It seems there's also kind of a, a, a timescale effect because regulators would look at, oh, how did you do in the past year and then inflict a fine based on that as opposed to something that's you know, more correctable in real time or, or more seeable in real time. Is is that part of uh, what we can maybe start addressing nowadays since there's maybe some more visibility or transparency? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think there definitely is. I mean, the current regulatory framework and legislative framework is based on this idea of you get fined if you breach some sort of limit. Right? And it's all retrospective. You know, it's something that, you know, at the end of the year, you declare how much of whatever it is you did. And if that was higher than it should have been, you pay a fine. And it's all, 
it doesn't change anything. The damage has been done. The emissions have been emitted, right? All that happens is that as a business, we don't have as much profit as we otherwise would have had. I think there's absolutely a case to say that today, there's no real reason for us to operate that way. It's not how we run the rest of the business. We run the rest of the business by looking at what's happening, what's happening right now. And when we see things start to move away from where they should be, we put corrective action in place and bring it back to where we want it. But for some reason, this whole regulatory framework around emissions in particular hasn't kind of caught up with the way we operate the facilities today in real time or near real time. So, yeah, I'm sure I'm absolutely convinced that's a big part of it. You know, obviously, we we live and breathe the uh, measurement, control and analytic technologies is where we both have, have grown up. What role do those latest technologies play in maybe changing the, that dynamic? I think it's fundamental, right? You know, what, one of the great things that's happened over the last five or 10 years and, and will continue to happen into the future is that the idea of real-time process management is moving off the shop floor, out of the control rooms and becoming kind of the standard way we actually operate and run the businesses, right? You know, we've all seen, I remember the very first DCS system I put in place, we air-gapped it from the entirety of the rest of the organization. I mean, that's inconceivable today, right? And what we're seeing is we're seeing businesses operated the way we have always had to run plants. And I think actually what we as control engineers and automation engineers today need to get our heads around is that because of that transition, we aren't restricted to the shop floor anymore. We're not restricted to the control room anymore. We have a legitimate place in the business and operations management part of the industries we work with and the companies we work with. It's as important for us to put the controls and the optimization around emissions, greenhouse gases, environmental compliance, efficiency, yield, all of these things, supply chain, supply chain management, sourcing decisions. All of that type of activity is a legitimate domain of control engineers today and absolutely in the future. So yeah, I think you know this 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 digital transformation that we're seeing, and it's not a phrase I use very happily, right? But this idea of digitalization and digital digital transformation absolutely changes the potential that we have for having a significant and profound impact. Mm-hmm. And it's not just the process control engineers, but it's also the frontline operators and the, the the plant floor crew as well, don't you think? Yeah, no, no, that, that's absolutely the case. I mean, and again, kind of rolling, you know, taking this back to sustainability, and we're often really talking about decarbonization and greenhouse gas emissions when in most of the industries we talk about around sustainability, albeit it's a much bigger subject. One of the things that I've observed over the last several years that I've been involved in this kind of space is that there's an immense amount of effort going into writing best practices, writing legislation building standards, a massive you know, undertaking studies, doing scenario planning. You know, it goes on and on and on. Academics, think tanks, government officials, government departments, all contributing to this explosion of knowledge, mm-hmm. explosion of ideas of things that could be done. But what they all kind of seem to forget, maybe because they think it's hard, right? But what they all seem to forget is that Unless the people, the manufacturers, and by that it really means the folks that we've got on the front line 
in the control rooms, on the factory floors, unless those people do something different, we have no impact at all. All of that thinking, all of that effort, all of that energy comes to nothing if it doesn't make a difference to the folks that we have running the facilities. So a big part of what I've been trying to energize and actually, you know, I've worked with a number of companies to achieve is how do we make sure that actually something's happening in the manufacturing environment itself, actually on the plant floor? How do we inform the people that are running the plants for us and on our behalf about what's currently happening, what could be happening or what should be happening, and how the heck to get from what they're seeing to where they should be? Again, the emerging technologies we see, you know, classical control technology in large part and optimization, but then the great advances we're making around data analytics and machine learning, all of those things contribute towards our ability to inform the people we've got at the, uh, on the cold face, if you like, inform them about what they need to be doing to make a difference. So, yeah, unless those folks change, unless something changes for them, nothing changes at all. So it's as much about visibility to the frontline personnel as it is about developing new algorithms to do something fancy. It's more about letting the operators know what the score is, really, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, no, I, absolutely that case. And I think... Yeah, you know, there are two. There are two yeah, I don't want to oversimplify the issue. You know, I think there are two contributory pieces to why that's not quite so straightforward. One is that how do you communicate that, right? In economics, there's a, a law that they call Goodhart's law, which basically says that any good measure of something, when it becomes a target, ceases to be an effective measure. The reason being that people gain the system, right? We're all really intelligent, really smart people, and as soon as you give us a target. We'll work out how to hit the target, perhaps without doing the things that were, were anticipated. You know, any all of us that are parents know exactly that dynamic when we try and set incentivize our kids to do the right things, right? It's amazing how they get win the incentive without changing changing the behavior. So there's a big challenge around you know, how do we resolve that problem? How do we make sure we've got clear transparency and clear line of sight from the actions of individual people on the shop floor? to the people that are running the company and the corporate level targets and indicators. And I think, you know, there's a lot of thinking that we need to do around that. And, you know, I've done a lot of work with a variety of organizations, most notably, let me call out the Resource Efficiency Collective at Cambridge University in the UK. We've done some really pioneering work around the measurement of resource efficiency from thermodynamic principles. As a way of actually providing that line of sight, it's you know providing a metric and a measure that can be used on the shop floor, but can be used just as well in the boardroom without any real room, right? Yeah, and so that can be used universally across different companies and different organizations if they've got a similar piece of operating equipment. Is that the idea there? Absolutely that, yeah. I mean, the idea of resource efficiency and it's most basic says, you know, look at all of the inputs you put into a process, whether that energy, you know, typically for us, they're either resources of energy or resources of materials. And then look at the effective or useful output you get. And then sort of say, well, how much useful output are we getting for all the input? I mean, if you think about it, any manufacturing process is really about taking low-grade materials. Let's think about steel making. You're taking low-grade iron ore. 
and high-grade energy sources, you know, coal or coke or whatever, and you downgrade the energy resource to CO2, and you upgrade the material, right? So you have to look at those two things together and understand mm-hmm. what's happening with them together in real time, right? To be able to really understand how your process is operating. Now, that's a real challenge for chemical engineers because as chemical engineers, we're trained that you do a mass balance and you do an energy balance and never the train will meet. Two different <laughs> systems that you think about and analyze in two completely separate, independent, isolated ways. And we all yeah. know that's not true, but intellectually, that's still the mind construct that we have. So, yeah, how do you combine those two things together, right? How do you add apples to oranges, right, and, in, a, in a meaningful way? And that's what, the, you know, this team in Cambridge have done a great job at sort of pinning down. And they're not the only people doing that. You know, there's all sorts of organizations out there that are really putting a huge amount of effort into how do we measure performance in standard ways that work and apply across our industries, you know, there's the task force for climate financial disclosure, tremendous organization providing some real structure around how do we think about the performance of our production assets and express that in, if you like, a way that's consistent with the financial metrics that are used to drive our corporations and are used to communicate with our investors. Similarly, you know, the carbon disclosure project, you know, I think it's now they claim more than 50% of all publicly floated companies so if you measure them by market cap right more than 50 percent now report carbon impact following a common set of standards and rules right so somehow the challenge i think for operating companies today is how do you take those high level metrics and how do you translate them into things that people can act on in real time because they need to be acting on them in real time because these emissions are happening in real time. So that's where you need to actually sort of drive the change. Are there any general guidelines in, in your practice when you go to visit with operating companies of things that typically need to be done first or the first few steps to kind of get your house in order for a more sustainable um, sustainability journey, I might say? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the very first thing is for any company or any business unit or any facility that wants to go down this journey, and I would advocate, I think everybody should, because we have a, almost a moral obligation to do it. Right? But anybody wanting to start on this journey, first up is to decide what does sustainability mean to them, to that organizational unit. Right? Because sustainability is a very broad church. It encompasses a whole variety of interconnected things and challenges and problems. It isn't only about greenhouse gas emissions and climate change, right? It's about water and water scarcity. It's about acidification of of water systems. It's about biodiversity loss. And there's a whole bunch of social things that come in there as well. That are, you know, It's a very complex system. The good news is that the UN have published their sustainable development goals. It's an incredible framework to use, right? And I would advocate anybody who hasn't seen those, just go look on, you know, go on a website and look at the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals and have a look and say, well, which of those apply to you? Which of those can you as an operate, as an individual, as an operating company, have a meaningful impact on? So first up 
is what do you what does sustainability mean to you? What's that kind of your ecosystem that you determine you want to make a difference to? Mm-hmm. I think having done that, and, and that's unique for each organization. You know, it depends on who they are, what they do, what the manufacturing process looks like, how they employ people, who they employ. It's a whole bunch of different factors. But what does it mean to you? Then align behind that. Understand who the people are that create the metrics and the measures and the standards around how do you measure performance in that space. I think the third thing then is get into real time, right? Don't do this retrospectively. This isn't about in June of next year reporting on what we did in 2020, right? This is about making a difference now, which means you've got to be doing it and managing it in real time. I think my final step I would say is start small, sow seeds. And, you know, one of the wonderful things about sustainability as a driver, as a creative force is that it is a real motivator for a workforce. So it will unlock creativity and innovation and potential in a workforce like nothing I've seen. So start small, sow the seeds, but then build on this. Make it something that your workforce live and strive for, knowing that if you're working in real time, good sustainable performance is good profitable performance as well. So you know, doing right by the environment is the same as doing right by your company. Yeah, and I, and I imagine if you publicize that sustainability journey, it's a great attraction to young people to enter the workforce as well and to come join your company. Exactly that. I mean, I think, you know, and as, I, as I talk around some, some of the big players in our industry, in the industries that we kind of work with traditionally, it's a widely acknowledged problem and challenge is, you know, how do we attract talent? How do we attract the brightest and the best young people into our industries? Um, and, you know, any amount of, uh, of um, polling and opinion um, gathering tells us that one of the things that com- that young people look at today is what's the sustainable sustainability strategy that a company has? Do they walk the talk, right? Or is it just greenwashing, right? Greenwashing is a real dangerous area for, for a lot of our industries today. So, yeah, it's absolutely about attracting that talent and and drawing it in and maintaining it and keeping it. It's very compelling, I think, in in that regard as well. Okay, great. Well, Chris, I certainly appreciate you taking the time to, to share your insights with us today. Stay well and stay safe. Really appreciate you joining us. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure. I'm Keith Larson, and you've been listening to a Control Amplified podcast. Thanks for joining us. And if you enjoyed this episode, you can subscribe to future episodes at the iTunes Store, and at Google Play. Plus, you can find the full archive of past episodes at controlglobal.com. Signing off until next time. Thanks again, Chris, and have a great day.